The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. Um, Today is the Tuesday the 11th of June 2019 and uh, for Tejo tonight I'm going to read some passages from um, one of the books I was um, studying during my solo solo retreat I had last week. It's called Moon by the Window, the Calligraphy and Zen Insights of Shodo Harada. And um, I thought this would be could, could be a, just a, a way of sharing a little bit with with you um, some an aspect of of the solo retreat I did. Um, I went to a a you describe it. It was called a hermitage, Saint Benedict's Hermitage, um, at a, a Benedictine monastery that's just out of Auckland, um, going south in the Bombay Hills. There's, um, five uh, nuns there who who um, recite the hours, the different um, um, sung liturgy that that is done. I think they start at five thirty in the in the morning, and they have periods throughout the day when they're singing in the church um, through until about I think about eight thirty or nine o'clock. And I wasn't involved in any of that. I was just staying there, but obviously. Within that, the that sort of ambit of that of that uh, energy, and um, doing zazen, mostly sitting um, about four two-hour blocks in a day, and then in between those times, um, taking walks, um, studying, reading uh, different different texts that I don't get round to normally. And on one of them, this one in particular, I took quite a few notes, and, and more or less at random, um, I think you'll see that certain themes emerge. So what I thought I'd do tonight is just simply read some of these passages that, I, um, that struck me in my retreat and um, comment a little bit on them. And I hope, hopefully it'll, um, it'll be... Um, inspiring to you all as it, as it was to me and that's one of the ways that these these readings function when, I, when you're doing a solo retreat is it's like um, little kind of reminders or encouragement talks in between the uh, the, uh, the sitting uh, sort of keeping keeping you on track um, with practice so the first the first one um, is actually a is actually from the glossary, and it's a, it's it's he's talking here about dharma, this word that comes up so very often, and in, in the chants we just did, and and throughout our training, and he he um, he says this uh, dharma, the universal laws of the mind, to which the Buddha was awakened the laws that govern the existence of each and every person. Dharma also refers to the unifying, undifferentiated mind without form or substance that extends throughout the universe and embraces everything without exception. This is what Master Rinzai speaks of when he says, the true mind has no form and extends in all directions. 
all people, when they encounter this true source, experience the same essence. So it's just reminding us that there are kind of two sides, two aspects to the Dharma. One, one we can see it in terms of just the laws that govern the universe, so things like impermanence and, and the, the unsatisfactoriness of, of conditioned things. Um, which are unsatisfactory, unsatisfactory because they keep changing. They're not fixed. We can't, we can't f freeze them in time. Well, the law of cause and effect as well. It's part of the Dharma. Um, from the most simple things to the complexities of, of, of human existence. So when when the rain falls, the ground get wet, gets wet. That's the Dharma. Or um, cats have kittens. Or the sun rises in the east. But there's also, there's also this other side, which is the side that we so often forget. This formless aspect of things. Um, Harada says here, um, the unifying, undifferentiated mind without form or substance that extends throughout the universe and embraces everything without exception. Roshi Kaplow used, used a rather mundane um, image for this. He said that um, this formless aspect of Reality was like the back of a of a wristwatch. You have on the front, you have the the the, um, the hands of the watch and the numbers. So that side represents time and space and um, um, before and after and everything. But the back of the watch is just just blank. So that back represents the other side of reality. You could say the nothingness side. And Harada points to the fact that a true mind is what unites us in all of our differences. That front, you could say the front side of the wristwatch could be showing any different, all different times if we were each one of those wristwatches. But um, there's also this, this, this unifying side, the side of nothingness it, it, that, that unifies everything, that contains everything. From, from neutrinos to galaxies and um, animals, humans, ecosystems, volcanoes. There's nothing that's outside of this, of this um, true mind of ours, this formless mind. And it's functioning impeccably all the, all the time. My picking up this cup and drinking out of it is the functioning of that true mind and tasting the water, knowing that it's, that it's cold. Um, I just remember that I didn't give you any information about Harada, so before I go on to the next piece, let me just um, say a little bit about Shodo Harada. Um, just for those of you who may not have come across him, He's, he's still alive, he's 
um, a Dharma heir of uh, Yamada Mumon Roshi, who is one of the, the great 20th century um, masters of the, in the Rinzai school in Japan. And Harada Roshi began his training young. He was just 22 when he entered um, a monastery, Shofukuji, in, in 1962. Um, he received Dharma transmission and, and permission to teach from um, Yamada Mumon Roshi in 1982. And he serves as the abbot of Sogenji in Japan. Um, has many students worldwide, um, and quite a few people from the Rochester Sen Center have gone and trained trained with him for shorter or longer periods, including our teacher Bowden Roshi. He's sometimes referred to as being a teacher's teacher. Um, Uh, although he's still, as far as I know, he's still um, living in his in Sogenji in Okayama. Um, he's talked for many years about um, eventually moving to Whidbey Island in Washington State, where um, he has a center. Um, but he's also many many demands are made upon him in Japan. It's very hard for him to to um, free himself sufficiently to to move to um, Washington State, but um, that he's been talking about this for many years. As well as being um, a master, a Zen master, he's um, a calligraphy um, master as well, as was his teacher. And uh, these, these commentaries that I'm reading from come from this book, which um, includes um, his quite, quite even for somebody who doesn't Japanese. Um, you can recognize his calligraphy. It's a very, very distinctive style that he's developed himself. And so what we're reading mostly are his, his comments on um, poems and uh, phrases that he's written down in his calligraphy. Next one is um, him talking about prajna wisdom. Prajna wisdom, the deep wisdom of the life energy that is alive right here and now, beyond what can be conveyed in intellectual terms. Prajna wisdom radiates everywhere, through the three realms vertically and through the ten directions horizontally. This is just really a way of just saying everywhere. It forgets the body and becomes one with each moment beyond an objective self and an objective other, where that which is shining and that which is, perceives the shining are one. So this prajna wisdom is, is the wisdom of our true mind. And, and he points out here that it, it, it is revealed um, in our, in our self-forgetfulness when we, when we drop our, our ideas about ourselves and others, when we stop creating an objective self and an objective other. 
Next one, next quote is, is um, about, about self, more about self. And he says, to see what is true, we must let go of our selfhood, our personality, our entity and our separate individuality. These limit and restrict, putting us in the shadow of I, me, mine, and making this world a hell. The idea of a me is incompatible with human's basic way of being. And when we act from there, we destroy the world. We must have a vow that reaches beyond our own limited interests and extends not just to all beings, but to everything in the natural world as well. Um, this, this, this need that we have for, for vows um, comes out of our constriction within this, this in our self-preoccupation. Um, we have, of course, we have the four vows which um, reach way beyond our limited interests. They're so unlimited that they can sometimes feel dauntingly impossible. All beings without number, I vow to liberate. How could we possibly do that? That makes me just saying it makes me think of something that great master Matsu said. He said, benefit what cannot be benefited. Do what cannot be done. Can It can be helpful besides our... our uh, four vows that we chant together to um, think about what our own personal vows are <coughs> what, what are our deepest aspirations what do we um, most wish in this, in this life um, it can be very helpful to articulate this he goes on to say our ego is not necessarily bad, but if we only use it for self-satisfaction instead of for all beings, we're ignoring a wider responsibility. We have to take care of the ecosystem and not just use its bounty for our personal needs. We have a responsibility to, sh to save this world for all future generations without resenting the effort this requires. It's, it's quite easy for us to kind of demonize our, our egos. Um, but actually, the, the, the ego is, is functionally quite useful in that it kind of unifies our sense of, of self and um, integrates consciousness to some degree. But if we can just understand that it's, it's a kind of useful fiction that we that we create, um, and we create it out of the material we've got, which is is the five skandhas, our senses and uh, our bodily senses and our um, our mind, body and mind, and and out of out of the information that we receive via the skandhas, we we um, deposit this ego. Um, and we imagine it. The problem is not that we have it, an ego, but that we 
that we take it to be solid and permanent and and uh, unchanging. The the Tibetans have this phrase for describing the five skandhas, um, these these um, the body and mind, as the, the perishing collection. We're this collection of perishing stuff, and um, yet we we try and try and solidify it and make it make it more real than it is. Um, but if we see if we see okay, we've got this ego, we've got this sense of self, then can we put it to good use? Can we turn it into a um, a good a good uh, workhorse? If we can go then and uh, go from uh, a strong, from an ego to an eco sattva, this is a term that's been coined, it's been around for a while, to describe someone uh, practicing the Dharma who takes up um, the ecological causes. Not a bodhisattva, but an eco sattva. He says the body, the Buddha Dharma is the activity of liberating all sentient beings in the whole world. If it's not this, it's not the Buddha Dharma. Um, African American writer Toni Morrison said, um, "The function of freedom is to free somebody else." We could say this function of freedom is to free something else. Or um, Elie Wiesel of the, the um, I forget the, the name of his organization. Do you remember it, Richard? He's the, he's the Holocaust, um, Weisenthal Center. Um, he said, if to be free is the most important goal of all, then to help someone to be or become free must be the most sublime and rewarding of human endeavours. This, this next passage is perhaps the one that struck, struck me the most in this, in this text. Um, and it's where he talks about the vow, the bodhisattva vow. He says, Although it is not possible to know the full light of wisdom without enlightenment, compassion is, impossible in this, is, is possible in this very moment. The, the desire to do whatever one can to relieve the suffering of other people can be acted on at any time. To think always of society and offer ourselves completely is our responsibility as humans and an expression of the very essence of our being. By acting in accordance with this, we move beyond our limitations and clarify our minds with the wisdom that arises through functioning. Without this, there can be no true liberation of all beings. So he starts off saying, well, to, to know the full light of wisdom, so that's like the deepest prajna wisdom, 
um, enlightenment is necessary. This this experience of enlightenment, the really the, the waking up to this empty aspect of reality, seeing it clearly and seeing it to be completely not separated from things, many things and time and space and so forth. So there's this side, okay, that is, is um, there's a sense that we have, that we have to realize that, that, that understanding. But at the same time as there being this um, call to us as human beings to wake up to this, this wisdom, we don't have to wait to wake up for, to that wisdom in order to practice compassion. Compassion is possible in every moment to respond to suffering, to do what we can to relieve suffering. That's something we can do anytime. More than that, this offering of ourselves completely is not only our responsibility as humans, and it's, a, it's the, the deepest expression of who and what we are. And he finishes by saying, by acting in accordance with this, we move beyond our limitations. That's where the vow comes in. And clarify our minds with the wisdom that arises through functioning. Without this, there can be no true liberation of all beings. So as well as this prajna wisdom, this wisdom that comes through awakening to vast emptiness, there's, a, there's a, another kind of wisdom which comes through functioning. This is the wisdom of, um, of practice, of praxis, practical understanding. Sometimes it's called skillful means. And it's absolutely vital for our putting into practice our understanding in the world. And, and um, it comes through our, the kinds of our work that we do our interacting with people, our um, completing tasks, our that without it there can't be any liberation of, being, of beings because we liberate beings in this world of form and, and change and practicality. The, um, the the Tibetans will, will sometimes talk about um, is two aspects of bodhicitta the, 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 the resolve to liberate being or beings. They talk about the ultimate and relative bodhicitta. Ultimate rel bodhicitta is the, is the seeing into, into emptiness and relative bodhicitta is compassion. That, that is unfolds in the world of relationships. They said to be like like two wings of the bird. You need you need um, 
you need two wings for the bird to fly. Anyone who is alive will eventually die, and anyone who laughs will eventually cry. But all of it is Mu. Born as a human in this world, we can know this awakening of our true mind. When all day long we experience the truth directly, whether we are coming or going, then the iron tree gives forth a flower. This is the, the verse of this particular passage is commenting on. The iron tree gives forth a flower. We will see how wonderful it is to be human and know that this is the greatest good fortune. To realize this directly is the most important thing we can do. To, to get a glimpse of, of this truth, um, it, it changes one's relationship to, to the world. He talks here about knowing um, this directly all day long. Um, that's uh, suggests a much deeper experience, a, a great enlightenment that actually transforms our whole being. Recently, I, I, I heard a, an interview with um, Byron Katie, she's a, um, a spiritual teacher. She developed a, a process called the work um, to as a way of, of working with our with the, th the stories we tell ourselves. Um, she's married to a, a very fine translator, Stephen Mitchell, who who's translated from many languages, including. Um, Rilke, Rainer Maria Rilke poems that I often use in Sesheen, as well as um, spiritual texts of various kinds, Hebrew, Buddhist, Hindu ones. But she, this Byron Katie, she had an awakening um, when she was in her 40s. Uh, she was in a, uh, I think in an alcohol rehab center at the time and a cockroach walked over her leg. <laughs> this, this was what prompted her great awakening experience. But it really was um, a, a profound experience. She went from being extremely depressed, um, so agoraphobic that she couldn't leave her, her room, uh, and a compulsive eater, uh, many other um, really, really difficult things going on in her life with her family and so forth. And, and, and sort of overnight after this experience, she became radiant so much so that people who saw her um, were kind of drawn to her and she became known as the light lady. And people would come to her for help. And, and sort of out of that process, she developed, developed her, her program, her, the work, but um, she said in this interview that she, she hasn't really um, experienced suffering since she had 
this awakening experience. She's experiences various emotions, sadness, uh, anger, anxiety, different things, but she can always um, uh, approach it from from a from an angle of no self and inquiry and examination so much so that she doesn't add anything extra to the emotion. This is um, we could this is what the the, um, the uh, poetry line in this in this piece the iron tree gives forth a flower is is pointing to it's the flowering of going from what seems to be a, um, a place of, of, of um, total stuckness to blossoming there's a there's actually um, another spiritual teacher many of you will have heard of Eckhart Tolle who who had his awakening experience out of a place of of, um, of suicidal despair We have been born to experience this expansive, enormous world. We are alive not for the sake of acquiring trivial worldly possessions or fame. These are all phenomena that last only as long as we are are alive. To seek the awakening of all beings, to experience the deepest source within the mind of each of us, isn't that what life is for? One of the other books that I was reading on the retreat um, is called the, the Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And it's by an Australian woman called Bronnie Ware, uh, who worked for many years, perhaps she still does, as a palliative caregiver, um, coming into people's homes and um, looking after them as they were entering into and going through the dying process and um, it's actually it's not a very well written book but it's a real insight into um, the deep satisfaction that that can come from helping people with their dying um, she really again and again with the, the different people she looks after she she sort of performs a role of spiritual midwife of of helping the dying people to um, uh, fulfill last wishes such as as seeing old friends or asking forgiveness of of um, family member um, just being able to express their love for for family members or or friends, 
listening, being listened to, being heard, and uh, in being involved in this process, um, there's, it, there's this real sense that that she's engaging in this process of helping the person to wake up and and touching that deep source of truth in the mind of the person who's dying. In his book, um, Who Dies, Stephen Levine talks about the healing that can, can occur in death. It's not that we, we get better and don't die, but that within death there is this, this process of, of healing that can happen. And, it, and then for the, both for the caregiver and the person who's dying, there can be experiences of this expansive, enormous world that Harada Roshi is talking about. This expansive, enormous world. Dying is one way that we, we can sometimes access this world more fully. Spending time in... Uh, wilderness areas can open us to that. Um, there was at the at the, the monastery where I was staying. There was a um, uh, a walk down through steep sides of the valleys of, of the the Bombay Hills into into old old um, forest area with a with a creek that of course was running really high when I first got there because it had been raining and it continued to rain so much. But just to be in this, in this, uh, be able to sit by a river and, and listen to it flowing past the birds and the, the sunlight on the water, this can, we can open to, to the, the, this enormous world through such things. Reading poetry is another way, listening to music, looking at a great painting. Through these, all of these, we can enter into what one teacher called a relative samadhi. To into a realm of, of, of um, uh, boundlessness. The next one looks into this boundlessness further. The commentary is around a, um, a line, I scoop up water in the, and the moon is in my hands. I scoop up water and the moon is in my hands. This line from the records of Master Kidol is a couplet with, I play with flowers and their fragrance clings to my clothes. When we scoop water into our hands and allow it to become still, the bright moon is reflected. Just as it shines in the sky above, Everything else is reflected as well, a child, an elderly person, a bird, a flower, settling right into our own hands. 
Likewise, when our mind is like a mirror, with no separation between self and other, we can express ourselves with clarity and simplicity. This is a very mysterious state of mind. Pure, clear mind is the Buddha's wisdom. We are more than our physical bodies. We have feelings that can become perfectly matched with the feelings of another. With this mind, we can know another's deepest joy and wisdom as our own, and we can know another's suffering as well. This functioning is known as the compassion of the Buddha. While we are all endowed with this original nature, we are not all able to live in this way because our minds are filled with impurities. For this reason, the Buddha taught that first we must quiet our mind. When our mind is still, it becomes pure on its own. The extraneous noise diminishes and the moon shining in the sky and the moon in our hands become the same moon, matched perfectly. To clarify the mind, doing no harm while giving life to all that is good, there is nothing more essential than this in the teachings of the Buddha. He finishes this passage with um, these, these um, talking about these three things, to clarify the mind, doing no harm while giving life to all that is good. This is um, um, pretty much word for word um, something that appears in the, the Dhammapada, which is a kind of the, the Buddha's greatest hits um, collection from uh, the Pali um, scriptures. Uh, usually it's translated something like, to avoid all evil, to cultivate good, to purify the mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. So this is like one way to encapsulate what the teaching is all about. But he makes here, because we can get we can get kind of hung up on the impurities that exist in our mind. But he makes here this very important point. We can't. I don't think we can remind ourselves enough of this. That it's not that we need to um, get rid of the impurities of the mind. But but rather that. We, we, as our mind settles, it becomes pure on its own. Um, it's, it's a little bit like, um, it's like a, a river actually. If, the, if a river is, is able to flow um, unimpeded, then, um, and unruffled, then it, it naturally clarifies the, the 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 sediments sink and the and the and the water is cleared. So it's much more to do with our getting out of the way of ourselves, allowing things to settle, trusting that process, trusting that the, our mind is actually um, in its in its essence not impure. When we, when we allow the mind to settle, then um, the, 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 the extraneous noise lessens. 
and the mind can get to this point where it it um, just reflects just reflects what's there when we see the moon we could become the moon when we see an, a person's face it fills our consciousness and we 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 become that person that is our that the that person's face is, is our mind at that in that moment True liberation of all beings can happen only when we are without any idea of helping at all. When we go into the world with that state of mind, for the first time we can truly function. This is what is most necessary in society today. When we function without force or attachment in our relations, we have the power to bring forth each other's deepest state of mind. Again, to be to be able to relate to others with with no agenda with with no um, um, preconceived notion of what we want to get out of a particular interaction Harada Roshi talks to, about it as without force or attachment Think of of uh, another way I could say would be in a non-violent and um, selfless way of relating. He says it's so this is so necessary for us today, and because we have a world where there's there's a lot of fear, a great deal of anxiety. Um, sometimes that turns into hate and aggression. And uh, the only way that we can we can effectively work with this stuff is by transforming ourselves. We are born into this world to realize our true nature. There is nothing but this in which to take refuge. We weren't born to live a life of confusion and melancholy. Every day we have to live with every day we have to live with responsibility and serve people in society. This is the value of our being born, and in this we find our true joy. To serve, to serve in, in the way that, that, that comes from our deepest um, aspirations, to play our part, and can be, can, can take so many forms. But if we, if we can find that that our calling 
then then there will be true joy in that. It'll be it'll be um, it will propel us along. Well, this last one now, and this is a commentary on on a verse on a winter peak. A lone pine stands tall. On a lonely and rustic mountain, in deepest winter, a mighty pine towers. That which is immovable can come only from one's deepest realization and awakening. Year by year, the pine stands during rainstorms and snowstorms through winter's severe chill and summer's intense heat, not being moved by the challenges of nature. This life energy has to be experienced directly. This is truly the state of mind of the Buddha Dharma. In each moment and in each place, not following along with circumstances, we can know the tr that truth. To awaken to this state of mind is the ultimate point of the Buddha Dharma. If we're if we're honest, then we will uh, be able to identify um, different kinds of things that throw us: um, adverse conditions, different people we we have trouble with um, that that trigger us and and destabilize us. And, and often we're, we're telling ourselves some story about ourselves. Stories about, about gain and loss, right and wrong, um, past and future, but that the, the core dualism that is behind all of this is, is self and other. This is the way that we divide up the world and, and that is so painful. But we can take we can take teaching from a, a great old tree like a pine or a totara. We can imagine these roots going down into the rock um, and we can, if we can dig deep the way a tree does, then um, we can develop this kind of deep sta stability of mind that um, enables us to to not be um, flawed by difficult circumstances, uh, conflicts. Its ability doesn't happen overnight, um, and it's not something we can just turn on. It's something that that uh, we can um, develop through our steady zazen, and though then those roots will be 
well um, developed when we need them, when, when storms come. As we were talking about the other other night, then, then minds like this, minds of that have this this stability, this um, unshakableness, can be the difference between life and death in extreme situations. For there to be um, one person who doesn't panic. This can be make all the difference in the world. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to our dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to return. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org dot org dot nz